The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season 2 provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. I'm Stephen Bradley, your host for the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I am privileged to have Dr. Nee Darko on the line with us. Excited to be here, brother. Thank you for having me on. Dr. Darko, he is a trauma surgeon by training. In addition to that, he is an entrepreneur. He is an author. He is the host and creator of Docs Outside the Box podcast, which is an amazing, amazing resource that highlights the lives of physicians who have stepped outside the traditional role uh, as healers and done amazing, incredible things. Dr. Darko, why don't you tell us about your day in, day out life as a as a surgeon? Yeah, so um, so I, I do trauma surgery, so I take care of the sickest of the sick. Um, I just basically take care of people who weren't expected to be sick, I feel like that. Um, so if you're in a car accident, if you needed, or if you had appendicitis, um, or whatever type of surgical emergency that you can imagine, if you got stabbed, you know, most people don't wake up expecting to be stabbed or, or in a bad car accident. I take care of those type of emergencies. Um, and I see them in the emergency room and then I take them to the operating room and I operate on them and I uh, fix them. And then also at the same time, I take them to the intensive care unit. And if, you know, they need to be in the intensive care unit, I can take care of them there. And then, you know, help them get on their way to either going back home or going to rehab. Um, so that's really one of the biggest moments of pride that I have from a physical, you know, physician standpoint is just being able to take care of people in all phases of care and not having to hand that off to someone else. Um, so mm-hmm. typically my, typically my day starts at like, you know, seven o'clock where I get sign out, you know, from the person who was on before. And depending on which institution I'm at, cause I work as a locums doc, sometimes I'll do a 24 hour shift or I'll do like a 12 hour shift. But for the most part, it starts, the day starts at seven o'clock in the morning. And then if I'm doing a 12 hour shift, my day would just go on until, you know, seven o'clock at night. And that mm-hmm. is going to the operating room. It may be going to the ICU um, or it may be, you know, just dealing with trauma patients. If I do 24 hours, then it's the same thing, but it just keeps going till the next morning at seven in the morning. That's so interesting. So what happens if you're in the middle of a case when that turnover starts? <laughs> you keep going, you keep going, you know? Um, so let's say for example, a case go, go comes in at like, you know, four forty-five or five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, you happen to be in the OR at six o'clock, right? Well, if you start mm-hmm. your case and the case goes till like seven, seven thirty, you're still going, you know, oftentimes you're, you're, um, whoever's there to tap you out, will meet you in the operating room. Um, and kind of talk to you about all the people on the floor, what happened the night before while you're operating, provided you're not, you know, you can give your attention away. Right. Um, or, you know, a lot of these situations, you have residents or you have physician assistants. So the person who's coming on can get the sign off from them. So there's like multiple ways in which there's like a, a safety backup system so that, you know, whoever's coming on can get information, whether it's directly from me or through my residents or through physician assistants or, you know, just come up to the OR and we'll just talk face to face. And as a locums doc, do you usually work at the same couple of hospitals or it's different every week? No, no, no. So I, I try to, 
find some consistency. So I try to make sure that I, that I work at the same hospitals in a rotation. So maybe at hospital A, I'll be working there for like a week, two weeks in a row. Um, but I try to make sure that I try to stay mainly at one to two hospitals, maybe even three hospitals for an entire year at a time. I try not to go from hospital to hospital A to B to C all the way down to Z in a year because it just makes it really difficult from a travel perspective, um, mm-hmm. trying to keep all the logins and trying to know all the different people um, living in different hotels. That stuff gets old really quick. So I think for anybody who's listening, if you're, if you're thinking about doing locums and you're attracted to, you know, just kind of being your own boss, try to find like two or three hospitals that you can work at and that you can rotate and keep those for like a year or two, if you can. And I think you'll find that the experience will be really good because, you know, yes, you'll be able to change up, you know, locations and change up scenarios often, but you're not literally going to a different hospital, you know, learning something new, trying to learn a new you know, political stuff that's going on with people in the administrative mm-hmm. offices and all that stuff. So I always tell people, just try to find like two or three hospitals and stick to that for a couple of years if you can. And the hospitals you do work at, are these community hospitals, academic centers? What what type of hospitals are they? The majority of hospitals that I'm working out of are community-based hospitals or hospitals in suburban or rural areas. And I think anybody who does locums will find out that for the most part, You know, it's not always, but for the most part, when you're working locums, you're going to find a lot of locums gigs at suburban community hospitals or rural rural hospitals, mainly just because just just the way how America works. Like there's a huge gap in in these areas, right? A lot of people Mm -hmm. want to be in the big cities or at academic centers, which is fine. But uh, for me, you know, a level two trauma center or something even lower than that is okay for me. I did a, I did my training in Atlanta with Morehouse School of Medicine at a level one trauma center at Grady Memorial Hospital. So I got my fair share of training. And then from there, I went I to bet. University of Miami. University of Miami, I ride a trauma center. And for me, it was just mm-hmm. a continuation of Grady. It was just Grady of, of Miami. And um, so I got my training you know, I got all my thrills, so now it's just for me time to, you know, hone in my craft, but I don't need the level one trauma all the time. Yeah. So when you were coming out of residency, did you know you're going to go into locums or where did you think your practice was headed? It's a good question. So I thought that, so coming out of residency, that's me finishing my five years at Morehouse, which was amazing. If anybody is ever thinking about doing any training at Morehouse School of Medicine is amazing, phenomenal. Um, the training there is second to none. I loved it. So for me, coming out of out of residency, I knew I wanted to go into trauma, so I had an additional year. But what happened is my father got sick during my fellowship. And then you combine that with the fact that I did so much trauma in my residency that by the time I got to fellowship, I was like, all right, I kind of know what's going on. Actually, I do know what's going on already. I feel good about what's going on. Yeah. So I wanted to go out and work. Now, the question is, basically what you said, when I go on work, do I go work, you know, in a private practice or do I go work at an academic institution? Am I employed? What have you? So what I started doing is I started going on these interviews, just like my other fellows were going on interviews. And I just started noticing that I would go to these places and I would go for like, you know, an eight hour interview. And, you know, they're not telling you nothing except great things. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So it's yeah. like, I'll be there for eight hours or however long, and they're telling you all this stuff, gassing you up. 
And then just like that, they hand you a three-year or a five-year contract, and then that's it. And after a while, you know, you start getting smarter and smarter at asking questions like, well, how often am I going to be on call? What happens if I go on call, if I go on call past a, a certain amount of threshold? Do I get paid more than that? What happens this? What happens that? And you start realizing as you're asking more and more questions, that experience of, yeah, it was so amazing where they were giving you jazz hands when you came in, <laughs> like all of that stuff goes, falls by the wayside. Like, why are you asking these questions for? Or, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Nobody ever goes past these things. Right. Like nobody wants to answer those questions for you because, you know, yeah. or they know if they have to answer those questions, it's not going to be that pretty of a picture. Right. So I started to realize that. And then actually there was this place that I was interviewing at and eventually the trauma director just literally started screaming at me over the phone. Like, you need to make a decision right now and go from there. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was talking to my girlfriend about it and I was like, and she's my wife now. And, and she was like, listen, like, think about it. If they're willing to treat you right now without you signing like this, imagine what's going to happen when you sign that contract. It ain't going to get no better. And I was like, you're yeah. right. You're straight. So I said no to them. And that's when I really started to really consider doing locums. And I said, well, maybe I'll do locums for a year or two, see what it's like working at these different places, and then go from there. And at first it took me a hard time to consider it because the rest of my fellows weren't doing it. So, you know, you kind of follow the crowd and you're like, well, if my fellows aren't doing it, maybe something is wrong with, it, wrong with what I'm doing. Right. But I can tell you right now, like not having to worry about taking that first job and deciding to do locums took a huge weight off my shoulder. And I tell you right now, like that decision changed my, my entire career, right? Like wow. if I didn't do locums, there would be no podcast. I probably wouldn't have paid off my student debt as quickly as I, as I have. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that you look back at one major decision that is opposite than what people normally do. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was that decision that really kind of put my, my career on a different trajectory and one that I'm extremely happy that I decided to go down. That's, that's incredible. Speaking of pivotal moments, because reading your bio on your your website, which is uh, com, you talked about watching the Cosby show as a kid growing up in Queens. In those pivotal teaching moments, you said that was a point that you realized that you could become a physician. What, tell us about that You know, as a kid growing up and making that life-changing decision to pursue a career in medicine. Yeah, man. Like I grew up in New York City. I grew up in uh, Left Rack City, if anybody's familiar with that. Spent like the first 10 years of my life in Left Rack City in Queens, which is uh, literally right across the highway from where Serena Williams plays, which is, you know, the, where the U.S. Open is, where Shea Stadium used to be. Now it's City Field where the Mets used to play. Mm -hmm. So growing up, you know, in the 80s, you know, you had sports all over surrounding me. So you had the Knicks, you had the Nets, the Mets, the Jets. The Giants were really good at that time. The Knicks weren't that good. But there was all these different sports things going on, and I didn't really gravitate to that, you know. For me, it was what I saw on TV, um, particularly like all of these different doctor shows, right? Like, I don't know if anybody's young enough to remember, but when I was growing up, like there was Trapper John, um, there was St. Elsewhere with uh, Denzel Washington was on that bad boy. Um, you know, there was a whole bunch of different shows, but, you know, the, the concept of Heathcliff Huxtable really, really hit me because it was just like, man, like he lives in Brooklyn in a brownstone, which is really nice, right? He's got his office downstairs. He's got a beautiful wife. She yeah. knows what she's doing, right? So like she's, she's coming correct. 
His kids are, are really good. He's funny. You know, I'm watching this guy every Thursday. I'm like, this is, this is what I want to do, right? Like, what yeah. else could I want? What else more could I want, right? So I knew then, I was like, man, I think this is what I really want to do. But you don't really know. Like, for me, at least, my mother is a nurse's aide, and that's it. Everybody else, my dad is, a, um, is into computers. But that was it, right? So I didn't know anything else about being a doctor. I didn't know about the time that they put in. I didn't know about the education. I didn't know any of that right. So over the next several years, and, you know, um, you know, that's obviously elementary school, but then once you get into high school and then, um, you know, you get into college, you start exposing yourself more and more to it. And I was like, yeah, this is what I really want to do. And it wasn't until, um, you know, if there's pre-meds listening right now, make sure you do those, those summer enrichment programs. So I, before I went to my school, uh, Lehigh University, they had this summer enrichment program for minority students, right? Because you, you know how it is. It's a little difficult to go from where I grew up, which is Irvington, New Jersey, um, to, you know, Lehigh University. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to transition, not because right. you can't do the work, not because you can't do the work, but it's just a little bit difficult to transition in a different environment, right? So they put you in the summer enrichment program. You know, you take some courses and you get some credits. You meet the people who are going to be, you know, your future classmates and so forth. But at the end of that summer program, they had this, um, this alumni barbecue. And I met this surgeon, this trauma surgeon named Dr. Jordan Garrison. And he was like 20 years ahead of me. He graduated from Lehigh and he was a trauma surgeon in Newark. Um, where oh if anybody, if anybody who's familiar where I, I just said, Irvington and Newark are right next to each other. Right. And he was like, listen, you know, you're interested in being a doctor. I'm like, yeah. He's like, listen, I'm a trauma surgeon. Why don't you come, you know, spend, you know, some time with me before you go to school, like to start the real year. So I remember I was like, all right, I'll do this. So I went, I remember the first time I went to hang out with him, this was around the evening time. My mother and my father dropped me off right in front of their emergency room and <laughs> him and my mother, they shook hands. My parents bounced, and then he said, yeah, let's go and talk. Let's walk towards the ER. And right as we're walking in, his pager goes off. And he's like, listen, listen, Longfellow, just, just stand in the corner. Don't do anything. Just stand in the corner, and just this is what's going to happen. And, like, literally, like, three minutes later, you know, this young guy comes in, you know, and he's screaming because he's in pain. And, like, there's, like, this huge like bunch of army of people who have like yellow gowns on and they're tending to him and he's screaming and they're turning him on his side. And you can just see, I can see like some like blood coming from his back, you know, and you can see there's like bullet wounds, at least to me. Yeah. And there's people going all over the place and you just see Dr. Garrison just telling people what to do, but he's just calm telling people what to do. And to me, it's like, this is chaotic, man. It's crazy. But for him, it's organized chaos, right? And then yeah. after like about 10 minutes or so, he's like, all right, enough. And like, we're going upstairs to the OR. I was like, all right, cool. you know, I got I can't go anywhere. So I, you know, I'm just, a, I'm not even a volunteer. <laughs> so I, you know, he, he goes away and takes the patient to the operating room and I'm, you know, disappearing. And I go and I watch something on TV and then I come back and I find that he's talking to the family and the mom is crying. She's in his arms and stuff. And he's kind of hard, like, yeah, he's going to be okay. You know, we had to do X, Y, and Z. I don't remember any of that stuff. I had to do X, Y, and Z. But <laughs> what I remember is that he said he was going to be all right. Wow. And the moment I saw that, I was like, yeah, this is for me. I'm going to be a trauma surgeon. That's what I'm about to do. Right? Yeah, and, um, yeah, you know, you just, so you see, you know, uh, you know, you see an African-American surgeon with, at that time, he had like a, a nice fade going on and, he drove a nice car, 
and he knew exactly what he was doing, right? And not only could he operate, not only was he in charge, not only was he able to console the family, it was like all of these things all together. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm about to be. I want to do that, right? So it's really important. The reason I tell that story is like, it's really important to see people who look just like you doing it, mm-hmm. right? Because that kind of takes the shroud off of things and say, well, if he can do it and he went to the same school as I did and he's mad down, why can't I do it? Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, afterwards, you know, I did it. I hit potholes along the way. There's no such thing as a smooth path. You know, I applied to medical school twice, but you know, I always kept my eyes on the prize and now I'm here. That's incredible. I mean, it speaks exactly to that. The fact that representation matters and that's something that you've done in your life and your podcast. And that's something that I'm trying to follow in your footsteps and, and kind of help reach that next generation. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you know, the, the key thing, I think what you're learning and I've definitely learned is, is not only is it important for representation, it's really important to let people know how we communicate. Right. Hmm. And you know, the reason I say that is, is I always wanted to create a show where I wanted to watch or I wanted to listen, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. You know, if anybody's familiar with the term code switching, that's if that's basically the mm-hmm. term of your, you know, the way how me and you talk is going to be different than the way how we talk in the, in the operating room or in the hospital. Dr. Bradley, right. how you doing? This patient has acute <laughs> uh, appendicitis. He needs to go to the OR. Can you give him some preoperative antibiotics? Um, actually, he's kind of dry. Can you give him some IV fluids? Get his urine output about 0.5 cc's per kg per hour. And then afterwards, we'll probably go to the floor. Can you, is, is that okay? All right, perfect. Let's do that. <laughs> but when we talking before, it's like, yo, family, oh, listen, man, I got this that we got to take care of. Right, afterwards, right. we'll play some ball. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but there's nothing, wrong, there's nothing wrong with talking how you talk before you code switch. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is, is like, look, we all communicate. We all connect with each other in so many different ways. And for me, I wanted to create a show where it was a safe space for everyone. So I try when I do my show to make sure that my show is not very stuffy. I try to make sure we talk on like we're having pizza, like we're, you know, having some grape soda, chilling, having fun. But the information is extremely actionable. But also at the same time, we're taking the stress and anxiety out of it. Right. Because I think the way in which people communicate in the hospital versus how they communicate, just, you know, chilling, either eating pizza or on a golf course or playing basketball is completely different. So I think what you'll probably notice is that, you know, the key thing is just not only showing people that you could be an, a, an amazing anesthesiologist and a great musician and give back, but also at the same time, you could just be you. And that's the most important thing that I try to tell people is just be you, yeah. own it, right? Own it and double down on it, right? Like I just interviewed Wendy, Dr. Wendy uh, McDonald, yeah. right? You know, his sister is like, you know, she's, she, she embraces her, her inner quirkiness, right? Like she, she takes, you know, really famous contemporary music and makes parodies out of it, right? In her own yeah. quirky way. And like, she's killing it. She's crushing it on social media. You know, but if she was worried about changing up how she talked and being really proper or, you know, worrying about what her, her colleagues thought, she would never get started. And she's changing so many people's lives. She's changing. Think about all the young people who are like, man, you can do that and be an OB. That's dope. I'm going to yeah. do that. You know? So that's why it's really important that I say, yo, keep doing what you're doing. Keep helping people. Keep with the podcast, right? Because people are listening to you and watching you. But also remain, make sure you remain who you are 
you know, because that's the most important thing, too, is that, you know, when we get to these levels that we remain who we are and we help other people who are just like us, who talk like us, who come from our same neighborhoods and so forth. So, yeah, Dr. Uh, Dr. Every Woman, that's her Instagram handle. Yeah. You know, because I just interviewed her husband. I worked with uh, Ed McDonald. Yeah. He's a GI doc at University of Chicago. Yeah. Dope family. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they got a lot of talent <laughs> between yeah. them. So a lot of talent. Speaking about, um, you know, remaining who you are and being true to yourself. So as you progress through Lehigh College, you applied to medical school, you attended medical school. What was that process like? How did you felt that you fit in with your peers in uh, college as well as medical school? I'm be honest with you. College was really difficult for me from a social standpoint, right? Because, you know, I grew up in Queens, New York, and then I grew up in Irvington, New Jersey, I went to this amazing school called St. Benedict's Prep, um, which um, I, the best way I could describe it is imagine Morehouse College, but for high school, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, minorities, black folk who are running a school who are not only the best athletes, but are also the best academically. Um, wow. And when I say run the school, like the, like the students run the school, Right. So to go from that, where like there's literally black excellence everywhere, to going to a school where now I'm the minority was a big culture shock for me, right? Um, It was a big culture shock for me. And academically, I knew I could compete, but it was just that loneliness of trying to be and hang out with people who kind of got you and stuff. And, um, you know, I, I developed friends from every walk of life and everybody was really sweet to me, but it was really difficult. And there was some I wasn't sure about that. From an academic standpoint, I had my issues. You know, I, I, I think I did okay, but I could have done better. I made my mistakes. I had to apply, you know, twice. But, you know, I think the lessons that I learned from, from college was that, you know, it's really important to, to really reach out for help. It's really important to ask people and let people know, hey, look, I'm struggling with this. Um, can you help me with that? And I think I didn't do that. Right. Because I was trying to keep this facade of, you know, I got this and there are all these different resources that were available to me. And if I had been more open, more vulnerable with myself, I think I could have gotten that help and done better. But that being that being said, once I went to medical school, right, and I reapplied twice. See, at this point, I didn't know about the student national medical. I didn't know about math. Right. So when I reapplied twice, I was like, man, like I'm this pariah. I got this scarlet letter. I didn't know that when I went to medical school that the average age was going to be 24 or 25 or 26, which means that these are people who reapplied, who either applied multiple times or maybe did took some time off. Then, you know, very quickly, you know, when I went to the school, there was this mentor there who this is I went to medical school out in Kansas City, Missouri, called uh it's now called Kansas City University. It's an osteopathic medical school. But there was a, a mentor there who really did an amazing job trying to get the school as diverse as possible and got minority students out from basically the East Coast and the West Coast and from major cities in between, got them to converge into Kansas City, Missouri. So it literally felt like coming to like this family, right, where wow. like there was just, just, you know, people who you identified with. And it was just a great experience. Not only in that, Missouri? The, in Missouri, in Kansas City, Missouri, brother. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
you like you you just don't think about it, but it's true, right? Like you get shocked by these things. And boy, boy, man, it was it was it was dope, man. You know, I met my my girlfriend at the time, and she's my wife now. There, um, you know, I met so many amazing people, and then to throw on top of it, there was this thing. I don't know. I'm sure it's big now, but when I was there, when I started med school in 2002, there was this thing called the systems based approach to learning, which changed yeah. my changed my learning. So for me in college, it was okay. You start, we t- you take a class in biochemistry. Then you take a class in biology and then you take a class in histology and then you take a class in whatever it may be. And they don't connect. That didn't work for me because once I got into medical school and it was like, okay, this is how you're going to learn. Now you're going to learn about everything related to the renal system, but we're going to talk about the anatomy of the renal system. We're going to talk about the pathology of the renal system. We're going to talk about, you know, all of these different things related to the renal system. Mm-hmm. And that was a game changer for me. I went from, you know, doing okay in school to completely, for me, I did really well because now if we're talking about, oh, now I get biochemistry. That's what it has. Now I see why biochemistry is so important because it really defines what diabetes is, right? Yeah. Now I get all of this because it de- now it determines what kidney disease is. Now I understand how Alzheimer's works and this is what it looks like on histology, right? But when you're just taking histo- histology in college, or when you're just taking biochemistry, at least in my experience, that connection to medicine, to the human body, didn't occur. And that's where it was really difficult. So for me, once I got into medical school, I just, I, I just really did well for me. I worked my butt nice. off, but it was just that connection that really got me hungry. Plus, being around people who look like me who were doing really well also really um, was, was, was great. And then being a part of SNMA the Student National Medical Association was just the, it was amazing. That, that, that right there was amazing. And, you know, between me and my wife, we got involved in national leadership. Um, it really, really um, was an amazing time. There's always that question that, that's being asked, what makes a good doctor? And for so long, it was board scores only, and now they're starting to look at other things. And so many people did not have that chance to become that fantastic doctor because there were doors that were closed. So it was just incredible. Once you get to medical school, you just took off and thrived. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. It really is about your environment. It really is about your environment because everybody who's listening to this show and you're wondering, you can do this. Trust me, because I've been to the school and I've seen people who were like, how did you get into the school? And (laughs) if they can make it, everybody can make it. If I can make it, trust me, you can make it. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that whole notion of who makes the decisions as to what's going to be a big, a good doctor. This really harkens back to the whole communication thing, right? Like you having a podcast. And the reason I say that is, is, you know, 20 years ago, you having a podcast and talking directly to people who are interested in how black doctors become who they are, it would have never existed. Right. Someone would have told you, someone was going to tell you when this show was going to happen or if it wasn't going to happen. So that now that the internet is here, you make that decision. You decide that you yep. want to have this show and people are going to listen. It's the same thing with who makes the decision as to who becomes a good doctor and not. Like, who, who, who makes that decision? Like, based off of what? Based off of board scores? I mean, how many people have we seen completely dominate on board scores but don't know how to relate to their patients? Exactly. Right? And that's a big deal. 
And people say, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever. No, no, no. That's a really big deal. If the patient doesn't feel comfortable with you or you can't elicit a really good history from them or you can't do a thorough physical examination or you can't. And what we're starting to really understand is if you can't empathize with your patient, i.e. healthcare disparities, then what good are you really doing, right? Like if you can't really understand what's the real issue as to why your patient has hypertension and really look at it more than just not taking your medications, or them not taking their medications, or them understanding, you know, for me, from a trauma standpoint, why is that a certain set of patients get pain medications that have opioids in it, whereas another set of patients that have a darker hue may not get pain medications with opioids in it because they're, someone is thinking that they have a higher chance of be, being addicted to it. Do you see how I'm, yeah. I'm connecting all this stuff? It's just yeah. like, this is all based off of assumptions, off of old, good old boy type network type decisions. And I'm really glad that we're in the age now of podcasts like yours and YouTube and social media and showing people that there's just multiple ways that you can skin a cat. There are multiple ways that you can carry yourself as a physician and be a great physician. And board scores are very important, but also being able to empathize with your patient, understand where your patient is coming from, talk to your patient is just as important also. Absolutely. And it's incredible that you've used your life story, your life's work to, in my opinion, empower others to go above and beyond themselves. And to that point, you know, I got to say you empowered me to step out and, and do this. I feel kind of like a, uh, like a little yay and, and Jay-Z here. I'm on the phone with my big brother uh, and the podcasting world. Well, but you see, you see yay is already a billionaire like two or three times over and probably surpassed <laughs> probably surpassed Jay-Z. So the reason I'm saying that is, is you keep doing the work, man. You, you're already there. You, you see what I'm saying? And it's, yeah. it's really important right now for people to continue to share their story, no matter what it is. Like you, you may not be the most charismatic person. I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking in general. Like you may not be the most charismatic <laughs> person, or you may not be the best looking person, or you may not be able to write very well, or you may not be able to talk very well. So in each and every one, you're like, well, I can't do this because you know, maybe I won't get the likes or maybe they won't read my blog because I don't write very well. Mm. Or maybe I use a lot of ums and ahs when I'm talking so people won't listen to my podcast. But what we're starting to see that people really want to listen to people who they identify with. So if you're yeah. someone who doesn't speak very well, there's going to be a significant amount of people who are going to, you know, run to you and, and listen to you because they're like, well, listen, if, if he doesn't speak very well and he's doing X, Y, and Z, then maybe I can do it. Or if yeah. you don't write very well and you're still willing to put yourself out there, then maybe I should write. Or, you know, like, I don't know many doctors who put people to sleep. They're anesthesiologists. They got a podcast on the side. And then they also playing, you know, they doing Zap and Roger. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? From, with, a, with a piano and that. What's it, what do you call that piano man, that, that you blow into, it, man? It, it, it's a melodica. A melodica. You know what I'm saying? Bringing <laughs> me back to, you know, <laughs> computer love and stuff. You know what I'm saying? But, like, that's dope. That's dope. Yeah. And you building your, you're building your own tribe, right? So it's really about just putting your story out there, living your own truth. Stop worrying about what other people think. Literally, stop worrying about what other people think because literally there is not one person for everyone. So what I mean by that is it's extremely rare, unless you're the rock, where literally every demographic <laughs> loves you, yeah. right? But you don't have to worry about that, right? You literally just have to just live your truth share your truth and you will find that you'll be extremely successful there. And that's what I decided to do. 
Like I am horrible at writing. I write like um like I'm writing, you know, an academic paper. And I wasn't very good at talking, but I said, you know what? I'd rather talk than type it out. And I just kept at it. I kept at it and I kept sharing my issues of being in debt and not knowing how to invest and getting, you know, having feel like a target on my back with, you know, uh, with uh, whole life insurance and making another mistake with whole life insurance and all of these different mistakes and just sharing. And it's like, you know what? It feels like I'm developing this tribe of people who, you know, have come from a similar situation of not really wanting to worry about money, kind of looking at medicine as this noble thing and then kind of being brought down and realizing that medicine is just important, but you got to take care of your money also. Right. And also at the same time, you got to be able to inspire people. And, and that's where we're at right now. Absolutely, man. This, uh, this melodica is going to get me put out the house because my girlfriend honestly hates it. So, <laughs> so we'll see if I keep up with, with that. Yeah, man. Keep it up, though, man. Keep it up. <laughs> so, so back in March of this year, I mean, this year has been crazy. So crazy. But March 7th, you posted on Instagram. Because I've been following you for a minute. But this post, for some reason, resonated. It was uh, seven reasons why docs should get off their butts and start podcasting. So... I went ahead, I clicked the link. I'm like, yo, this dude wants to get me on a, a mailing list or whatever. But I went and read your post, uh, looked at your show, the Docs Outside the Box podcast. You've been doing that for what, two years now? No, now we've been doing it for over four years now. Over four years? Yeah, since, since 2016. Uh, you've had over 100,000 downloads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting close to a million now. Close. All right, I got some. Well, we got to update your website, man. Oh, is it? Is it? I, I must say, yeah, I got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be uh, uh, Larry King over here. I got some outdated information. Um, you were. I keep you on your toes. Keep you on your toes, brother. That's what... <laughs> uh, you were voted one of the 50 best doctors on Instagram to follow. That was by uh, Board Vitals. And your podcast has consistently been in the top 100 podcast on iTunes for uh, career related material. Tell us about this Docs Outside the Box podcast. How did it start? How's it going? So Docs Outside the Box started because I really felt like I was on this, like, on-ramp to or already on the hamster wheel of life. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, as I take you through college, right, like, or even high school, you're like, man, I want to be a doctor. I can't wait to get into college. Man, I'm in college. I can't wait to get into medical school. I can't wait to, once I get into medical school, I can't wait to be a resident. Once I finish residency, I can't wait to be in a, a fellow and then an attending. And each time you're living your life four to five years at a time, right? You're moving yeah. from place to place. There's always that next challenge. But what happens when you become an attending and there's no more of that challenge? Now it's just, all right, now you got to work, right? Now you got to work, right? And I was just like, all right this is it. Like, that's it. Like I just work and I work till I'm like in my sixties and then I'm bouncing. Yeah. And I was like, Tired. yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to just do that. And this is where the story of locums comes in. So I did locums that first year after fellowship and I met some people who were just phenomenal. Like I met people who were, there's one guy literally was doing, medical humanitarian work in like war-torn areas of the world, particularly like at the time he was in, um, he was in the Sudan and he would spend actually more time in the Sudan than he would in the United States. He would just come back to the United States just to bring, make some money so that he can live and spend the most majority of his time in Sudan. Wow. I, I didn't know you could, I didn't know you can do that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
I know you can yeah. do that. Then I met some people. I met this woman who was a medical consultant for a TV show on CBS. I know you can do that. Um, and then I just met another doctor who is coaching other doctors. I ain't know any of this stuff. And I'm just sitting there like, why is it that I don't know any of this stuff? So at the same time, I was listening to podcasts um, for myself, kind of trying to learn how to pay off debt and all these different things. And I was like, wait, is anybody doing a podcast on doctors who are, you know, kind of taking this non-traditional path and, you know, trying to just be as extraordinary doctors as they can? And I looked and I couldn't find it. And I just, at the time, you know, when you have a network of people who are, are helping you to level up and my network of people um, are people who started Tour for Diversity, um, yeah. people who were in SNMA, um, you know, just people who I knew who were coming from my walk of life who were extremely successful. So I said, look, when I start interviewing you, I'll put it on wax because I just want to know what it takes to be successful like y'all have been doing. And then we'll go from there. And slowly but surely, it just started building, you know, momentum. And people started leaving reviews on on um, on Apple Podcasts at the time, which was you know the prominent thing now with Spotify, and I just started getting more and more people saying like you need to do more episodes, and I was like, you sure? And they're like, yeah, you need to do more. So I just started doing more, and the rest is history. And you know the big thing now that we focus on is we focus on the three M's of the show. The three okay. M's are one money, right? So we focus on money, like the personal finance things that you as a doctor need to take. How do you pay off debt? How do you uh, invest if you've never invest, invested, right? People just assume that you're just smart. You know how to invest. No, there's a lot of people who don't know how to invest, right? And they get intimidated by that, right? How do you budget? If you want to get a Tesla, how do you make sure that you prioritize your life so that you can have a Tesla, but still invest, still pay off your debt, right? Because you can afford... You can afford anything once you become a doctor, but you still can't afford everything, right? So that's really important. Then the second M is, yeah. And then the second M is mindset, right? We talk about everything related to the growth mindset. There's the fixed mindset, which is like all I've ever done in my life is X. And that's all I'm ever going to be able to do. That's it, right? Whereas the growth mindset is, is, yeah, I've trained in X, but I can turn around and do Y, right? And that's big for physicians because a lot of physicians talk themselves out of, you know, going into real estate or starting a podcast or starting a business or whatever it may be. And it's like, dog, like, really? Like, you trained to do the hardest thing that most people can't do. 1% of the population are physicians, even less than that. And you mean to tell me you don't know how to do real estate or you don't want to learn how to do real estate or you don't even want to know how to start a podcast or do a YouTube channel or do a coaching course? Like, it don't make sense. So let's talk about how we can get our minds more open to embrace those other things just because it's uncomfortable. And then the third M is thinking about more than just you. So we're talking about mission. We're talking about doing medical humanitarian work, which is what I do in Ghana, where I'm originally from. And my wife comes with me. Um, we're talking about social advocacy, you know, obviously how more doctors can really get involved with really advocating for people outside of just you right? There's always someone who's a station below you in life. How can you make sure that you can do things so that their lives can be better? So those are the three things that we focus on the show to make sure that doctors have extraordinary lives, to make sure that they are a doc outside the box. And I'm over here taking notes. I'm like, I'm not recording the whole podcast episode. <laughs> 
so that's that's I'm glad uh, that's how it should be though. You know what I'm saying? It's just we gotta we gotta learn from each other, right? Because this is this is if you keep it to yourself, that's how it was before, right? Like it's like you 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 do before you release your Picasso, you make sure that you're you're in your closet or wherever you are and you're painting this Picasso, and when it's ready, that's when you show it to people. But life is not like that anymore, right? Yeah. The way how it is now, you gotta share your process with people. That's how you build legitimacy, right? Like, how do you play all those instruments? Well, I want to see you playing those instruments and making mistakes on Instagram and whatever you're yeah. using so that if I ever want to include instruments into my intro, I know I can go to Dr. Stephen Bradley and talk to him because he knows what he's talking about. Same thing with yeah, a podcast. If you, right. That's how it works. It's dope, man. Yeah, DJ Doc B. Rad. That's my uh, stage name. <laughs> oh, DJ Doc B. Rad. Okay. All right. I got you. All right. <laughs> but I think probably one of the things that uh, I'll probably leave the audience with is just really understanding the concept of, you know, how powerful money is. And what I mean yeah, by that is money it. should, money shouldn't consume you. Right. But money is a tool. And what I mean by that is, is particularly in our community, we don't really talk about one, how to invest money. Oftentimes we tell our kids, save your money. Right. That's what my parents did. My parents are from Piggy Ghana, Bank. West Africa. Yeah, my parents are blue-collar workers. Like I said, my mom was a nursing assistant, and my dad was, you know, he worked on these computer systems in the Federal Reserve. He would fix those computers. The best they can tell me to do was save your money. Work hard and save your money, right? And then I also paid that safe tax. And what I mean by that is I was the first generation, which means I had to do a safe occupation, a doctor, lawyer, a teacher, an engineer, or, you know, an embarrassment to the family, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, you got to choose those first options. Otherwise, you know, so I became a physician. But it's really important to understand that you can make money work for you. And putting money in the stock market or investing it in many different ways, whether you're investing in a company or investing it in real estate or investing it by investing in yourself, there's so many different ways that you can make money work for you and use it as a tool to give you the life that you really deserve and that you want. And I think once you look at it that way, you really start to understand that, wow, like I can't just, you know, it's really important not to let someone just manage my money for me because nobody's going to take care of your money more so than you. But also at the same time, if you want your life to be a certain way, you don't have to think about your money all the time. You just have to know enough to say, you know what? I think it's important that I invest my money so that it gives me a certain rate of return because I want to, I want to make sure that when, you know, I'm of a certain age, I want to practice the rest of my life in, in Ghana, West Africa, or I want to, you know, do X or I want to do Y, right? Those are the important reasons why it's important to understand how to manage your money, why it's important to pay off your debt, right? And whether you do three years like me and my wife did, right, or you do five years or you do 10 years, the most important thing is that you're trying to give yourself the runway to do the things that you really want to do in life, right? Yeah. If a hospital tells you that we want you to take extra shifts, how likely are you to say, hell no, I'm going to go someplace else if you got $300,000 if you're $300,000 in debt. Right. But if you ain't got no debt, you're going to be like, yeah, but I ain't, I ain't trying to hear that. Like, I'm not doing it. Well, then you're, we're going to have to let you go. Well, I'll just go someplace else. Yeah. Right. It's not that easy, obviously, but I'm telling you right now, that conversation is way easier to have if you have a significant less amount of debt than if you have a ton of student loan debt. So that's why I always tell people like, yo, 
pay off your debt as quickly as possible, right? Like me and my wife, we paid off $662,000 of student loan debt in three years, right? We, we did it because, you know, we're from, she's from Brooklyn. She's Haitian. I'm from New Jersey. I'm, I'm Ghanaian. And, you know, living in central PA, it's okay, but it just wasn't where it's at for us. We wanted to be closer to our family, but we can't afford to live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Like for real, for real. Right. We couldn't afford to live in Brooklyn and pay off our debt. And we couldn't afford to live in the part of Jersey that we wanted to live in and be close to family. So we lived in uh, five hours away. It was a great working environment, but we really wanted to be close to home. And we used that as a pain point every day that we went to work and we're not near family. We use that as a pain point to be like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we got to pay off this debt because the quicker we pay off this debt, the quicker we can get back home. I know we covered a lot of stuff. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Where can our listeners find out more about you, your projects? I know you do some coaching. You have your website, speaking engagements. Let us know how we can get a hold of you and, and what you have to offer. Yeah. So if you want to know just in general about me, go to my website, drdarko.com. That's D-R-N is in Nancy, I-I-D-A-R-K-O.com. And there you'll learn about me, um, you know, where, what makes me tick. You'll also learn about the podcast on um, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, anywhere where you listen to music or where you listen to your favorite podcast. You can listen to my podcast called Docs Outside the Box. And like I said, we'll focus on the three M's there, money, mindset, and mission for you, Doc. And then on social media, anywhere is Dr. Nee Darko. People reach out to me through social media, so I'm happy to connect with anybody who's looking to there also thanks again for coming and hanging out with us and, and sharing oh man this is a fun conversation man you got a good thing going man keep it up a lot of people are going to learn and are going to be affected by your podcast your your podcast really matters make sure you, you keep this up so whatever i can do to yeah. support you brother let me know the black doctors podcast is a non-profit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly